who is alive. We do not sing, we do not pray, we do not read about in scriptures about a dead man. He's a living God. He's Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. And it's through His resurrection that we become born again as well. Father, we sing hallelujah this morning. Cheyenne Chandler has sung hallelujah in her testimony. In her immersion in water, she has sung hallelujah to you. And now I, Lord, am charged by you to lead us in singing hallelujah as we look into the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you will be honored and glorified and we will be strengthened and edified in these next few moments. And we pray this in the strong name of our living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Mark chapter 3, verse 7. We are working our way through this Gospel of Mark, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and no doubt heavily influenced by the testimony of the Apostle Peter. It's Mark's primary source, along with the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And as we pick up this morning in verse 7, I want you to put on... Your, your history perspective. I want you to engage with these passages of Scripture historically, because this is true human history that we are looking at here. These are not fables. These are not parables. This is a true account of the life of the living God, Jesus Christ, who walked amongst us. And we pick up in verse 7, and we see that there is a a massive historical event that's happening and unfolding before the very eyes of the people there, and yes, even before our very eyes here today. Pick up with me in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases passed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. We'll read 13 through 19 in a moment, but let's just stop there. I want you to take this scene in with me. It it had to have been one of the wildest scenes if you were there as an eyewitness. The crowd was huge. They came from every direction. The, The furthest geographic location in that list of towns is 120 miles away. So Jesus' reputation had spread geographically beyond just the immediate area that he was in. Many estimate that the crowds that were there, based on the Greek language that was used in the population at the time of that region, the crowds were in the 10,000s. This is not just a rabble of people, maybe two or 300. There are thousands that are crowding around Jesus. Jesus has already told us earlier in his, in his speaking ministry that his primary purpose for coming to earth was to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. Was to preach. But these crowds are seeking miracles. 
These crowds want showtime. They're not real interested in his speech. They want his works. And I'm going to tell you that Jesus, looking at these crowds, does not see success. He does not define his ministry as successful with a large crowd. He looks at the hearts and he defines ministry success as people professing his name as Lord and Savior. People believing in him and coming to him in belief for healing. Not those people that are coming for the show. So Jesus saw the crowds not as success, but as we will find throughout this gospel and the other three gospels, he saw the crowds as a hindrance. As a hindrance to what he was called by God the Father to come and do on earth. These crowds, let's understand who these crowds are. They're made up of two types of people. The first group is the physically sick. The physically sick are thronging to him. In verse 10 it says, For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So just picture all these sick people and maimed people and disabled people pressing in just to get a touch just to get a touch and Jesus it says was literally concerned about being crushed by this rush of humanity and so he has him tie a boat up on the shore so that he can get away literally if only oh if only these people realize they don't need to touch Jesus they need to hear Jesus they need to hear in their hearts, Jesus' words. They need that far more than healing physically. There's a second group of people here, and they're the demonically possessed. And we don't see a lot of this in this day and age, but there are demonically possessed people here. Verse 11 says, When the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! This is the second group of people that's pressing in on him. This crying out of the demons, you are the son of God. This, this ties to an ancient belief in those days that if you knew the full and proper name of someone, then you knew their essence because the name of someone meant something very profound back in that day. I mean, Jesus means God saves and Christ means the promised one. So his name had very, very monumental meaning. And here comes these demons, and the thought was that back then, if you knew someone's full identity and their specific full name, then you could have power over them. That's what they thought back then. And so here's these demons that are within people, and they are proclaiming to Jesus, you are the Son of God, and this is really an effort on those demonic spirits' part to try to squelch and control and influence and shut down Jesus. These demons knew exactly who Jesus was, but the people did not. John tells us in 1.11, Jesus came to his own and his own didn't receive him. He is a Jew of all Jews. He is born of a Jewish mother. His father is God. He understands all the Jewish law and these people do not recognize him, but the demons do. It's really amazing. At this point in Mark's gospel, God the Father has said in, in John, uh, in Mark 1, 11 or so, you are my son with whom I'm well pleased. The only other entity that declares Jesus as the son of God are the demons. They don't need his physical healing, these people. They need his teaching and his words, and they need to truly understand who his identity is. 
Yeah, it, it had to have been a wild, wild scene. The sick, the feverish, the disabled, all coming to press in. The demons howling out his name and his true identity and taunting him with it. And I dare say the Pharisees are sitting over there looking for him to break some law. Looking for an opportunity to convict. If if we are to rightly understand who we've seen in Jesus Christ up to this point, we need to understand that up to now we have very much been focused by Mark on the deity of Jesus Christ. But in this passage of Scripture, we are going to get very well acquainted with the humanity of Jesus. Yes, He is fully God in the flesh, but He also is fully man in the flesh too. He's both at the same time. We have emphasized rightly so far His deity. If you look at some passages prior to now, in one eleven, God the Father says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. In one twenty four, the demons, a demon says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So we're dealing with the deity of Christ in that statement. In verse 2, 6, the paralytic is lowered down to Jesus. And Jesus says, my son, today your sins are forgiven. Only God forgives sins. No man can do that. In verse two nineteen, as long as the bridegroom is present, Jesus says, and I'm the bridegroom, you don't fast. You fast when I'm not here. And so he's claiming deity. He is God. You fast because of the absence of God. I am God with you, so you do not fast right now. There will come a time when you will fast again, when I'm no longer with you. Portraying the future event of his death, resurrection, and ascension. And even last Sunday, we see that Jesus declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. That's a claim to deity. So up to this point... Jesus Christ, very clearly in the Gospel of Mark, is God in the flesh with us. But now, we see the humanity of Christ. And we must not overlook the fact that Jesus Christ was fully man. For Him to be a true substitute for us on the cross, He must be one of us. You can't substitute for man with something other than a man. A man's got to substitute for us. And so here we see that He is in danger of being physically crushed. The text says, lest they crush him. And so Jesus was so demanded of that he had a boat waiting so that he could escape this rush of people. And he felt immense pressure and immense stress and strain in interacting with these people that he has been called by God the Father to come and save. Jesus Christ has got a stressful life, a stressful ministry. The very people that he came to save were sometimes very burdensome on him. You know, he came to save people and expose himself to these burdens that that people who will not involve themselves in the lives of other people never have an appreciation for. And we are to imitate this Christ. We are to come to people that need Jesus Christ and we are to bear up under their weight and their burden, their needs in life so that we could point them to this one This Christ who can save them. And Jesus knows exactly what that's about. And he did it and he calls us to do it as well. So I'm going to ask a question this morning because I think the rest of this text will answer this question. How did Jesus bear up under this kind of physical and emotional pressure for three and a half years? How did he do it? You might want to say, well, he's God. And he just snapped his fingers and dealt with it. That's not what the scriptures say. 
the scriptures portray very clearly that Jesus Christ had human issues and qualities. So look at verse 13. In the heat of the moment, let's pick up and and see where this text goes next. In the heat of the moment, when he's crushed and crowded by all these people, what does he do? He goes up on the mountain and he calls to him those whom he desired and they came to him. So he separates from these crowds and he goes up onto a mountain. And he does something up on that mountain that speaks to his humanity. It speaks clearly that he is going to recognize his human features and he's going to call people into play so that he can be supported and joined in and partnered with in doing this work of ministry that God the Father has called him to earth to do. And so in verse 14, we see what he does. First in 13, he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And in verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So three things here Jesus does in the heat of the moment. He goes up on a mountain to separate from the crowds. He calls to himself those whom he desired from amongst those crowds and he appointed 12 men to help him minister to the crowds. He enlisted help, reinforcements. God did. (laughs) Yes, he's fully man, but yes, he's fully God. And God, and we'll see in a moment why, God has chosen to enlist men to help him accomplish his mission. Now, there are three important aspects. There's a lot that we could talk about on those things, but we're going to focus in on these 12 men that he has appointed. There are three important aspects to this appointment of apostles. And here they are. Number one. Jesus did the choosing. Very clear from the text. Very, very clear from the text. Jesus did the choosing. And this is very, very different from what was tradition in this time. Many have called, even the demons called Jesus, Rabbi. And in those days, a rabbi was someone that was sought out by students, also known as disciples. A disciple is a student. The rabbis were chosen by the students. Okay? If we had a rabbi in our midst today, I would say, I want to study under Rabbi Josh. And so I'm going to go affix myself to Josh and his ministry, and I'm going to glean from Josh everything I possibly can with the goal of being better than Josh one day. And then maybe someone would come to me and call me to be their rabbi. So the students in this era went and chose their rabbis. Well, this rabbi, Jesus Christ was not chosen by these 12. He chose them. It is explicit in Scripture. It says here, He called to Him those whom He desired. The initiator of all of this is Jesus Christ. And He appointed them so that they might be with Him. He did the appointing, not the students. So Jesus' discipleship program is radically different from the rabbinical programs of his day. Listen to John 15, 16. This is just explicit on this topic. John 15, 16, Jesus says in the upper room with his 11 now disciples, because Judas has left the scene to go betray him. He says, you did not choose me, 
But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That is exactly what Mark says in our text this morning. Jesus did the choosing. Jesus did the appointing. And Jesus does the equipping of these 12 men. Second thing, let's understand the difference between disciples and apostles. Because we see those titles used interchangeably with these two group, with these 12 men. A disciple, as I've already said, is a student. It's a learner, a follower, someone who is trying to glean wisdom from a teacher so that they might become equal to or better than that teacher. There were many, many disciples of Jesus Christ. Crowds of them. And there's a text in Scripture in John chapter 6 where multitudes of his disciples left him because he spoke too harshly about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We looked at that this last Wednesday night in our biographies. But there were uniquely 12, and they were called apostles. What does an apostle mean? Well, an apostle is one who represents another, one who is sent out by one to other people. So a disciple is a student, follower, learner. An apostle is a is, yes, a follower, but one who is sent out to represent fully the one who sends them. There were only 12 of these at this point in the text. Over time, there was 14. We get Matthias, who replaces Judas, and we get the Apostle Paul, who met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And so that's the difference between disciples and apostles. The third thing that we need to understand is what was the purpose of Jesus calling these 12 apostles? And it is twofold. Number one, we see a so that right there in verse 13 after the parentheses. That's the purpose that he's called these guys. So that they might be with him. So Jesus calls these 12 to be with him. He is relational. He wants to have a relationship, an intimate relationship with 12 men, unique from anybody else. And then the second so that is, so that he might send them out. So that they might be partners with him in ministry, representing him, yes, in the immediate term, and as we will see through the course of Scripture even after he's dead and resurrected and ascended to heaven, these are still apostles sent out and they launch in the books of Acts, the church, the early church. And they began what we are actually doing here this morning, gathering on the first day of the week, remembering the resurrection of Jesus Christ and opening the scriptures and understanding and worshiping God through that act. Now, Under this, so that he might send them out, there are three distinct purposes. One, two you're going to find in this passage. One is to preach. He sends them out. The first thing he wants them to do is to preach, which is exactly why he came. And he told them, I came to preach. Let's go to another town so that I can do what I came to do. So he is going to send them out to preach. What are they going to preach? I believe they're going to preach what Jesus preached in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I believe that's what these guys are going to say. They're going to say exactly what Jesus said. So the first thing is they're going to come and preach. The second thing Mark says is they're going to come and they are going to have authority to cast out demons. And this was a big need, right? 
They're going to have authority as apostles, not as disciples, but as apostles. They're going to have authority to cast out demons. And then there's a third task that they're charged with. Mark doesn't give it to us, but Matthew does in chapter 10, verse 1. The same scene, Matthew adds this. He adds to heal every disease and every affliction. And we take all of Scripture together to understand the, the mission of these apostles. And so it was to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. Exactly what Jesus Christ came on earth to do. And that's all he did. That's all he did. So these apostles are true representatives of Christ who sends them. And Jesus builds a team to whom he may delegate some of the burden because he is a human being that can only be stretched so far. Yet he is God. Don't ever forget that. And how do the two coexist? I don't know. (laughs) But the scriptures are clear. In his humanity, Jesus needed physical help and enlisted these 12. And in his deity, Jesus Christ chose to engage these 12 in doing his ministry. Only God can appoint 12 men to go preach, heal, and cast out demons. No human being can do that. So we see the deity of Christ in having the authority to commission these men to do this. Yet we see the humanity in him saying, hey, I need you guys to help me. So there we have it. And in verse 16, we are introduced to 12 men who are given a massively immense mission. And I'm here to tell you today that their mission was accomplished. And the evidence that their mission was accomplished is that we're even sitting here today doing what we're doing. Mission accomplished at Rocky Point Baptist Church on Sunday, August 9th, 2015. Their work was successful. Let's unpack some of that now. In verse 16, pick up with me there. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boenergus. That is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, comma, who betrayed him. What do you do with a list like this? Wrap it off and move on? We could spend one Sunday on every one of these men. And for the last many weeks, we've spent one Wednesday, haven't we? Some of you that have been right back here in the class that I'm teaching, we have dissected every one of these apostles biographically this summer. And it's been a fascinating study to look into the lives of these men and how they met Christ and what their mission was in Christ and what their flaws were and what their strengths were and how their lives ended. It's fascinating to study these 12. And it's not too late. You come this Wednesday night, we're finishing with Judas Iscariot. It's going to be a tough one. But come on. Actually, two weeks from now, we'll look at Matthias. It's an amazing fact to consider who Jesus assembled to form his most close and trusted partners in ministry. It is an amazing study to see who God chose. It's amazing. He could have chosen anyone in Israel. Anyone. He passed over the highest and most noble candidates. He passed over the knowledgeable, studied Pharisees with all their robes and hats and scrolls. 
He passed over the high priest who was holier than any other man on earth and who went into the temple on behalf of people before God. He passed over those guys. He could have picked a retired high priest, couldn't he have? He passed over rabbis. Instead, he chose 12 common men. Common. I want to emphasize that word. 12 common men who were absolutely obscure and unknown are notoriously known for the wrong reasons. It is a motley crew that Jesus Christ assembled to be his apostles. And there is something for us to learn from this. Jesus' invitation to him was very bold. Over in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus says to, to Andrew and Peter and basically James and John, he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. These were fishermen. And he said, I'll make you fishers of men. But follow me. It was a command, not necessarily an invitation. Jesus, remember, chose them and commanded them, you come. With these words... And with absolute obedience, 12 men were assembled into a small, simple team. And these men turned the world upside down. Acts 17, I can't remember the verse number, but there is a reference to the apostles. These men who have turned the world upside down have come in here and upset our town. (laughs) That is exactly right. The apostles of Jesus Christ Turned the world upside down. You're evidence of it. I'm evidence of it. That we're here this morning doing what we're doing. Yes, they turned the world upside down in a number of ways. They preached and taught about Jesus Christ. They cast out demons. And they healed the blind, the lame, and the sick. They walked on water momentarily. They witnessed the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Sound like Superman, right? Nobody's ever done these things. But they also listened to this. Oh, listen to this. They also did not understand who their leader was to the fullest. He told them three times that he would die and rise from the dead. And when it happens, they're hiding, terrified, and they're shocked that they've lost Jesus. He told them three times. They argued with one another about which one of them would be the greatest. Oh my goodness. They denied Jesus. They betrayed Jesus. They scattered like sheep when their shepherd was murdered. They were common men with the world coursing through their veins. They were fallen, fallen men yet chosen by Jesus Christ. They were men in transition and were being sanctified, purified, made right with God one day at a time. But they are not supermen. The supermen Jesus did not choose. So, such men do not seem deserving of being called by Jesus to be apostles, right? Well, let me give you the biblical reason why they are absolutely who Jesus needed to call. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Let's go there. Some may not need to turn there. But this verse is massive in Christianity. Which verse in the Bible isn't? But this is a big one. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Paul writes, and Paul is an apostle too. He writes, For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. None of these disciples were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Sounds like every one of these 12 guys, doesn't it? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that. Circle that so that right there. So that. No human being might boast in the presence of God. I'm going to tell you this morning that Jesus Christ chose foolish men, (laughs) sinners, to be his apostles. Jesus Christ chose weak men. Now, they were strong fishermen, but spiritually and and, and character-wise, they were very, very weak men. God chose, Jesus Christ chose foolish men, weak men. He chose low and despised men. Men, and I'll show you that in just a moment. And he did this to shame the wise and the strong and those that are. And he did it so that not one of these 12 men could boast and say, I'm one of Jesus' all-stars. I was the cream of the crop out of Israel. I was known all over Jerusalem. I had a rabble of people following me that were my disciples. And Jesus, no, no. Jesus goes by a lake to some fishermen and says, follow me. Jesus goes to a tax collector and says, leave your booth. Come on, let's go. So before I move on, I want to make a real poignant application to you and to me this morning. The God of all creation who made everything that ever was and is and it will be, comes to people like you and me and says, commands, follow me. Now, we have a responsibility to reply to that command. There were many who abandoned Jesus. But he calls us, he chooses us, and he chooses to use us in building his kingdom for all of eternity. And there isn't a one of us that deserves to be called by Christ. You do an inventory of your life from as young as you can remember to present. And I want you to tell me, is there some sin there? The sinless one, the one that made you, knowing full well that you are sinful, says, Cheyenne Chandler, Follow me. Edward Heinze, yeah, follow me. You're exactly what I need to bring to shame the wisdom of the world, the power of the world, and the things of this world that are. Follow me. So this morning, I want you to understand that we are no different than these apostles. These are not super holy men. They're people just like you and me, common men with fallen traits. There is nothing any one of us has done sinfully in our lives that would keep us from being used by Jesus Christ. You have to believe this. 
Now, there's some things that I can do as a pastor that would forever render me ineligible biblically to be a pastor, okay? There are some things that I can do that would... But that does not mean even in that scenario that I could not be used by God to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Right? So I want you to hear this morning loud and clear. No matter what you've done, if you're thinking, God cannot use me, God will not use me, you stop thinking like that. You stop that. For the love of Jesus Christ, you stop thinking like that. And you start saying, might you use me, God? In spite of all that I've done, would you please use me? And the Christ of the Bible will wash you clean. And He will use you for magnificent purposes for all of eternity. Do not miss that this morning as we look at these 12 men. Let's sketch out these guys. I'm going to do this quick because we spent one hour on Wednesday nights on most of one of these guys. But let me sketch out real briefly for you this list of men. And by the way, I just love, if you, if you put them all together, I'd love the nicknames that God gives these guys. <laughs> Simon. First is Simon. Now, Simon is always in the list. He is the one that Jesus changed his name to Peter, Rock. Okay? Simon is always in the first slot. In all the list of the apostles, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts. John doesn't give us an inventory of the twelve. But in all four of those listings, Simon Peter is always first. And I can make a strong case for Simon Peter being the first among these apostles. He's the leader of the apostle team. You look at the scriptures, he is quoted more than any other apostle. He is named more than any other apostle. Jesus talks to him more than any other apostle. We have more stories of him walking on water and denying Jesus three times and proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Holy One of God. I mean, there's story after story. Peter is central to this team of 12. He's the leader of them. If you go next to the brothers, James and John, they're sons of the man named Zebedee. They're both fishermen with dad. They've been grown up in dad's fishing business. And they are nicknamed Sons of Thunder. (laughs) What a nickname. You might say, man, I'd like to be nicknamed that. Well, wait a minute. I think it really means hotheads. I think they had trouble controlling their temper. There's a passage in Scripture, Luke chapter 9, 52. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. They go to a village in Samaria. And the people in that village do not accept and receive Jesus Christ with a warm welcome. And James and John, it says, saw it and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They're hotheads. They're sons of thunder. Jesus said, no, I don't. And by the way, you can't. Only I can do that. So it's interesting that these guys have a temper problem and together with their mother there's this incident where with their mother they asked Jesus when when we die and we go to heaven can can my brother sit on your left and me on your right they want greatness they don't get it and the other 12 the other 10 get very upset with him these guys are bickering between each other it's like the 12 stooges sometimes James you know I didn't talk about Peter Peter Denies Christ and, and then preaches Christ in Acts. Peter is told at in, in the end of the book of John that he's going to be crucified. It's very explicit. You're going to reach your hands out. People are going to take you where you don't want to go. It's a picture of Peter dying a death of crucifixion. 
Church history has it that Peter died crucified, yes, but at his choice, because he said he was not worthy to die like his Savior, he has to be crucified upside down. And church legend has that that's what happened to him. James here, the brother of John, James is the first apostle martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. And we get it in the book of Acts. I think it's in Acts 12 or 11, somewhere in there. He is beheaded for following Jesus Christ. John is never martyred for his faith. He's the only of the twelve that is not murdered. But he is exiled to the island of Patmos where he lives in a cave alone for some period of time in his old age. These guys suffered for following Jesus Christ and they delighted in doing it and part of their suffering was how they turned the world upside down. Andrew. Andrew is a fisherman with his brother Simon Peter. Andrew, we know so little about, but Andrew is an evangelist because when Andrew discovered Jesus Christ, the scriptures say in the book of John chapter 1, he immediately ran to his brother Simon and he says this, we have found the Messiah. Andrew is the first evangelist amongst the twelve. And all we know about Andrew is that he told Peter, Simon, his brother, about the Messiah. And so he's got this obscure role in Christianity. But look at the impact his brother Peter had on our faith. That all starts because Andrew introduced him to Jesus. So Andrew's a giant in the faith. And Andrew turned the world upside down by showing Peter the Messiah. So that Peter could launch his ministry. How about Philip? Philip was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he too, like Andrew, is an evangelist. He ran to Nathaniel, his very close friend. And he says to Nathaniel, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel learns of Jesus, or Bartholomew is his name as well, learns of Jesus through the evangelism of Philip. So we have Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. He's a close friend of Philip's. He's a student of Old Testament scriptures. He does not believe at first Philip's testimony that we found the Messiah because the Messiah is not going to be coming from Nazareth. That's nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures. Bethlehem, yes. Jerusalem, sure. Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And yet Jesus says, before I called you, I saw you sitting under that tree. And Bartholomew says, you are the son of God. Matthew, we did Matthew, what, two or three weeks ago? Right here. We did a biography basically on him. Matthew is a wretched tax collector. He is a Jewish man that collects taxes from Jewish people to give to Roman Caesar. And the Jewish people despise this traitor. And he collected more than the taxes that were due so that he could skim off some profit for himself. That's who Jesus chose to follow him. A robber baron for the Caesars. Then we've got Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin. Some call him the doubter. I really don't like to call Thomas the doubter because all 12 of these guys, or all 11 of these guys, doubted. Thomas, I think, demonstrates a loyalty to Jesus that I only aspire to. There's a point where Lazarus has died and Jesus is going to go back to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead. And his apostles say, don't go there. They just tried to stone you, Jesus. We can't go there. You're going to die. And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. Love that. 
And yet Jesus rises from the dead and Thomas says, I ain't believing none of that until I see the holes in his hand and the gash in his side. These men are fallen. They're just like you and me. Then we go to James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Lesser. Don't hardly know anything about him. We know some facts about his mom. His mom was a follower of Christ. She was there at the cross when he died. And she went to the empty tomb that morning to prepare his body and to anoint him with spices. And he was gone. That's all we know about James the Lesser. How about Thaddeus? He's also known as Judas, the son of James, not Judas Iscariot. Uh, Iscariot. Uh, Thaddeus is, is not known for anything other than his name. The name Thaddeus means basically breast child. We would call him mama's boy today. He is known for his place in his mama's heart. That's all we know from scripture. So he's an ordinary Joe, right? And then lastly, or second to last, we come to Simon the Zealot. There's two Simons, Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot. What does this title Zealot mean? Well, it's astonishing. A zealot was a member of a radical political party of Jewish people back in that day. And I'm going to tell you, they were nothing short of Jewish terrorists. The zealots would go and kidnap Roman government officials. They would go up and stab and kill an unsuspecting Roman soldier. They would extort, assassinate. They did all kinds of things on behalf of Israel in the name of Yahweh against this empire that had raided them, Rome. They were scoundrels. God does not condone that. I'm going to ask you a question, by the way. Can you imagine the moment when Simon the Zealot met Matthew the tax collector? Look at who Christ assembles. These guys are supposed to be at each other's throats. Simon should have killed Levi, right? But instead, but instead, they become unified. And the common denominator in all of these guys, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, the common denominator is Jesus Christ, God with us. And he changed everything about him. He made him fishers of men instead of fish. He took the zealot and made that man zealous, not for crimes against the Roman authorities, but zealous for the name of Jesus Christ. And every one of these guys, I've not listed them for you. I, I guess I could right quick. Andrew died on an X-shaped cross for Jesus Christ. Philip died, is stoned and crucified in Phrygia. Bartholomew was beaten, crucified, and beheaded in Armenia. Matthew was run through with a spear. Uh, I forget what happened with Thomas. James, uh, we don't know much about, but he was murdered in Asia. Uh, and then Simon, the zealot, was crucified for his following Jesus Christ. All of these guys were changed and they became, yes, radical, but radical for God in a humble and loving way. And their radicalness didn't mean they went and killed people. Their radicalness meant that they were killed for Christ, just as Christ was killed. So then we got one last one, Judas Iscariot. And Mark says, comma, who betrayed him. Judas Iscariot did not exist amongst these 12 by accident. He didn't fool Jesus Christ. He didn't pull the wool over their eyes. He didn't slip in unsuspecting. Jesus Christ chose him on purpose, just like he chose the other 11. And I want you to listen to Jesus' words in John 6, starting in verse 70. 
Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And John says, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Dear people, Jesus Christ chose Judas Iscariot to be amongst the twelve because there was a divine mission that must be accomplished. So his purpose in selecting Judas, Judas was to be the trigger mechanism that would bring about the murder of Jesus Christ so that Jesus could rise from the dead and defeat sin and death forever. And he said, I need a Judas on my team to get that accomplished. Through his divine choosing and the subsequent betrayal of Judas Iscariot, we have a substitute, the God-man Jesus Christ, for our sins. And he died the death that was due to us for disobeying God. And if we believe in him dying in our place on a cross, as Cheyenne Chandler proclaimed to us this morning, she believes that he is the source of her forgiveness for her sins, we will be saved. And then we become disciples. And we go out and we are used by Christ to proclaim his kingdom is coming. Yes, these men turned the world upside down. And amazingly, they're still doing it to this very day. They're not done. Jesus prayed in John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. These apostles wrote scripture and Jesus prayed for you and me that we would believe through the writings of these apostles. So if you believe in Jesus Christ today, it's because God used some apostles who wrote some scriptures to bring you into this salvation. Their sermons and their writings have survived to this very day. They still get preached. They get preached every Sunday here. I'm talking about the Gospels of Matthew and John. I'm talking about three letters that John wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I'm talking about a, a book called Revelation that the Apostle John wrote. I'm talking about Peter who wrote two letters. I'm talking about Mark who wrote the very gospel that we're preaching through. His source for this gospel was the Apostle Peter. I'm talking about Paul who wrote 13 books of our New Testament. And Paul was trained and brought up under apostle leaders when he became an apostle. And in turn, I'm talking about Luke, who was influenced by the Apostle Paul to write the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. That's 24 of our 27 books in the New Testament that have apostolic, hands-on influence. Then we have James, half-brother of Jesus. Jude, half-brother of Jesus. In Hebrews, we don't know who wrote. These men wrote 24 of the books or influenced massively 24 of the books that we use to proclaim our faith in Jesus Christ. So these men to this day and even this morning, I dare say, are turning the world upside down. And as their witness is read and believed throughout all the generations until Christ comes again, we are to join them in that work. And we do not proclaim our own words. We proclaim their words as inspired by God. So we don't write a new message in Christianity. We're telling an old message that never gets old. It's an ancient, ancient message that's fresh and new every 
day. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ like these 12 and like many of us here, I urge you, oh, I urge you to read their writings. And I urge you upon reading these writings to believe these writings. And I urge you upon belief of these writings, I urge you to obey these writings. When you read, believe, and obey, you have just become a worshiper of Jesus Christ, God Himself. And may the preaching of these words today be used in your life to make you a more profound student of these words, or maybe for the first time, if you've never been a student of these words, you would become one, so that you might be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you've chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the low and despised, even the things that are not to shame the things that are. It was foolish for you to die on a cross for people who sinned against you, but you did it and you shamed the wisdom of the world in doing so. It was foolish for you to choose 12 men fallen in so many ways, to turn the world upside down, but they did it because you dwelt inside of them and led them. It's foolish that you would call any one of us into salvation. We've wronged you. You made us. You made everything in the world, in the universe, in past, present, and future. You've made it all. You made us. And we wronged you. And yet you still, even in this moment, you're inviting everyone in this room to follow you because they're hearing your word proclaimed. It's foolish that you would call us with all that we've done, and yet you do. So, Father, would you now use us? We're here. We're reading. Many of us are believing. Most of us are obeying. Would you enable us to believe more and obey more so that we can worship you fully? We ask that you would do that this morning. What a privilege it is to be people that are influenced by these men that turn the world upside down. Thank you for using them to call us into salvation, into worship this morning. May you be honored by what has been done here this morning. And would you lead us out now, Father, as we finish our time of worship congregationally in these next few moments. And I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.